0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to 2nd Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we're going to be reading the first twenty-two verses. Father, we bless you once again this morning. Thank you for giving us hearts to worship you and song and to have hearts that Go along with our lips to praise you, to continue, Lord, to open our ears, our hearts, our minds, to hear your word. Help me, Lord, this morning to proclaim the truths that are here within the Old Testament, within 2 Chronicles, about King Jehoshaphat. Amen. So 2 Chronicles... Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Menuhites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim to fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations, in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and have built for you a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, a sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold... Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they had went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed." And so it goes on to say, Judah's enemies turned on each other, and finally in verse 24, that none had escaped. So what we have here is a recounting of a battle fought by a king of Judah within the long narrative of First and Second Chronicles. It's just one of many that we could look at. The usual narrative is one of Judah or Israel, the divided kingdoms, in a battle led by either a good or a bad king, the armies engage, and the Jews win some and lose some. They fight the Philistines, the Amalekites, Egyptians, Cushites, Arameans, the Edomites, and of course, near the end, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which did not turn out very well for the Jews. Besides all this, the Jews fight extensively among themselves, Judah against Israel, off and on over many years. Sometimes Judah wins, sometimes Israel wins. But then sometimes Judah and Israel join together to fight a common enemy. Now the usual conclusion of these wars is many, many dead bodies. And it can get pretty ugly and very shocking. For example, shortly after the kingdom is divided, the second king of Judah, Abijah, is warring against the first king of Israel, Jeroboam. Judah has 400,000 men and Israel has 800,000 men. And when the whole thing is over, Israel loses, and the scripture reports, so there fell, slain of Israel, 500,000 chosen men. So that's a half a million dead bodies strewn across the land. And so we could go on and on with body counts that would stagger the mind and make us scratch our heads since the world population today is about 50 times what it was then. So if you do the math to make it relative today, it's overwhelming. Now some would say these numbers are exaggerated or simply misunderstood due to their overwhelming size, but we've got to just believe what's here in the ESV. Now there's a few times in Israel's history when things don't fit the usual pattern. And those are the triumphs of Judah or Israel, brought about by God doing something to intervene, can we say, in what we would call a miraculous way. And our passage this morning, as we heard, is one of those times. There were some other times,
1: like when the Israelites
0: were being attacked by the Arameans and the Lord struck them with blindness. And then again, they came and laid siege to Israel, but then four lepers went out to the Aramean camp and they found the entire army had fled after God made them hear the sound of a great army coming. And later when Judah was under siege by the Assyrians, God sent angels to the camp and struck down the horde of the invading army, almost 200,000 men, and saved Judah. So here in this morning's passage is another amazing victory that God brought about that can teach us a lot about how to think about God, trust God, and believe he acts not according to our plans and purposes, but to his. So here in our passage today, the king of Judah is Jehoshaphat. He is the fourth king of the divided kingdom. He's what the Bible calls a good king. It says of him, he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. There's no Baals permitted. He would take down the high places and he taught the law throughout the land. Foreigners would bring him tribute and goods since God turned their hearts to fear and revere this Jehoshaphat. And also, of course, he had a giant army. So Jehoshaphat as a king was well acquainted with war, prepared to fight pretty much any major or minor battle. As a matter of fact, he's the king who joined up with the very, very bad king, Ahab of Israel, to fight the Syrians. You might remember that alliance, where the lying prophets told Ahab, go, you shall succeed. But Jehoshaphat called for a real prophet, and the real prophet, after mocking the false prophets with yes, yes, sure, go ahead, then told the real story, and said that disaster would come upon Israel, and so it did. Jehoshaphat and him went to battle, and the king of Israel died. How else do we know Jehoshaphat is well acquainted with war? Well, his dad was king for about 40 years. And Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when his dad died and he became king. So he was around a long time during the years his dad Asa was reigning. And there were some pretty spectacular battles while his dad was king. His dad had an army of about a half million men of valor, as the Bible calls them. So then the Ethiopians come to fight. And the scripture says, literally, the Ethiopians had an army of a thousand thousand, which our ESV Bible translates simply as they had an army of a million men. So the greatly outnumbered Asa, who was also a good king, it says, went out to fight them, drew up lines, and then cried to the Lord and said, There is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And then it says, the Lord defeated the Ethiopians. And it says they fell until none remained alive. That is a very bloody battle that Jehoshaphat's father fought. So this family is very familiar with large armies and large bloody battles. Now, we have to be careful about creating a formula for success by reading our text and similar ones about attacks, battles, victories, and defeats, that we do this, and then the Lord does that. If we are faithful and good, then things turn out the way we think they should, for our good the way we see it. But maybe we do see a common theme running through here. Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, in that bloody battle, was in the same situation as our text. He seems to be minding his own business when suddenly there is word of an attack. And the father Asa does the same thing Jehoshaphat does. He declares, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. And after he had won the bloody battle, the Lord said, the Lord is with you while you are with him. And so things went along very well for Jehoshaphat's father for a long time. But then, well, he messed up. When he and Israel were about to fight, his father Asa made a deal with the Syrians to stop helping Israel fight against him. And the Lord's response? Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. From now on, you will have wars. But does the Lord always bring about what we humans conclude is best by faithfully following the pattern of all of that that it suggests? Well, no. Recall the good king of Josiah, of Judah, not long before the exile, was very faithful to the Lord. He caused much of Judah to turn back to the Lord and was blessed with peace in his time. But because of the mountain of sin Judah had piled up, the Lord had already determined to bring disaster regardless. So as we begin to read this passage, we wonder, what will the Lord bring about? It starts out pretty similar to many other passages in Chronicles. The writer starts out by telling us there is an enemy army on the march coming to attack judah nothing really new there but in this case they're at en only about 20 miles away near the dead sea when the word comes of the invasion that's only about as far as it is from here to dodger stadium now jehoshaphat's been a good king as the scripture says he sought the god of his father and walked in his commandments and His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and he had a pretty peaceful kingship. But in spite of all his obedience, and his ensuring all the people of Judah were taught the laws of the Lord, God is testing and stressing his faith with a severe test. But when the test comes, Jehoshaphat is ready. He's trained himself. So verse three, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Jehoshaphat assembles all of Judah and they all come to seek the Lord's help. Seems like he need not worry too much over since there is his army, a huge army that the king can call upon any time he wants. But he doesn't want. He wants to seek the Lord. In a sense, it's a good thing that it's a great multitude that's coming against him. It's a horde, as it says, It's so overwhelming and sudden that he's got to turn to the Lord. And so he does. He begins to pray. And can we note that he doesn't really tell the Lord how to go about solving the problem? What method to use? As a matter of fact, he spends most of his prayer recounting what God has done, reminding God of his mighty acts and faithfulness in the past. But since God does not need reminding, Jehoshaphat is really reminding himself and Judah of the trust they can put in, well, in God. The king starts out with what every prayer should start out with, if not in our words, at least in our mind and our heart. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. If we start with that and really believe it, then we remind ourselves that whatever does happen, he's in control. If he's sustaining and controlling the universe, then he's definitely got believers covered to do us nothing but what he knows is good. And for Jehoshaphat too, except there's a massive army about to come and destroy him and all the people. And so he does something similar to what both Solomon and David did. He speaks of the sanctuary, God's house, basically praying again like this way Solomon did at the temple dedication. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So Jehoshaphat here prays a similar prayer. If disaster comes upon us, the sort of judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you our affliction, and you will hear and save. So after that, Jehoshaphat, then he gets specific Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And then the king says something that caps it all off when he finishes with this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that is such an honorable honesty, especially from a king who is familiar with bloody battles and commands a huge army and runs a large kingdom. Can we imagine today's leaders coming to all the people during a national crisis and saying, well, we really don't know what to do, but we're waiting upon and watching what God's gonna do. So here's the king, he's got his army on the ready, enemy just down the road, he's fasted and prayed and assembled all the people to do the same. Then he's at the end of his plan, don't know what to do next. What he's done here is taken to heart the revealed things of God. You need an army to protect and defend yourself. That's fully godly. The people have fasted and prayed. And as we'll see in a minute, he's got the worship team, the choir, on the ready. So now it's left up to the hidden things, the secret things of God. The king and the people have exhausted the revealed things of God and what they teach. So what might come to mind here is Paul's description of the Christian life. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So it seems the king is kind of going the same direction as Paul, not sure what more to say to God or ask of him, but basically just groaning for help. But the king here is where we all are every day, but only in severe distress do we really see it often. Our helplessness to do anything our own apart from God is always true, but we often go about our daily life without acknowledging it or discovering it. It's all due to God's sovereignty as creator and sustainer of all things. There was a headline in the satire website Babylon B that spoke to this. The headline of the article said, What has God ever done for me, asks man breathing air. That reminds us of God's provision and care for us by pointing us to the most fundamental necessities and provisions that we have. So when we are under duress or in distress, as we trust in God who we love, honor, and obey, when we come to that place, we should realize that our fear... Our anguish at the future is as unreasonable as our self-assured security that suddenly vanishes from our worrying minds. And we sing like that. We lift our eyes up to the mountains. Oh, how we need you, Lord, you are our only hope. And the Psalms are full of this. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. And then, the Lord replies to all this through a musical prophet. At this point, everyone is standing there listening. It's a major crisis. All Judah, we read, is standing there with wives, children, and children little ones, it's everyone." So then the prophet Jehaziel stands up and prophesies to the king and all of Judah. This is a prophet of the line of the Levites, a descendant of Asa, who David put into service to prophesy, the scripture says, with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. He tells them that God's going to do the fighting. Throughout his prophecy he makes it clear what God wants them to do These are the kind of words he uses. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Stand firm. Hold your position. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. The Lord will be with you. God says the battle is not yours, but God's. But then is that really different than other battles? Many times the Lord would say he was giving the enemy into the victor's hands. He told David before he was king to go to battle and that I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. And then after David was king, another time God told him, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And there's all kinds of other examples of a battle in which, obviously, whether it is stated explicitly or not, God's hand is determining victory or defeat. So how did Jehoshaphat and all of them get to this moment? when they were about to go to battle, now expecting God to fulfill his plan and promise. If we go back, we see that Jehoshaphat was trusting in the Lord, following his commands and living in obedience in the sinful human sense. Now, we can't make a road map to guarantee blessing from the Lord the way we always decide it should be, but can we see the road traveled here by this king? The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments. And then, we understand in his kingdom, he would send out teachers. Having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So when the word of the pending attack comes, Jehoshaphat and the people are ready. The king begins to pray and fast. He assembles the people and his counselors. And then he takes heed of the prophet's words. The Lord will fight on their behalf. So I guess what this is saying to us is mostly obvious. If we are walking in the ways of the Lord, seeking the Lord and walking in his commandments, like it says of the king, we're on the right track. And when the attack or the trouble or distress or doubt or fear or confusion about the future comes... We know we have to pray and maybe even fast, too. And here, the king has the added benefit of a word directly from the Lord as the prophet stands and tells him very clearly what to do next. That's after the king has done everything he knows to do and says, Now, Lord, I don't know what to do next, but I'm looking to you. Unfortunately, you and I don't normally have a prophet come to speak to us. So it would appear that we are handicapped in that way. But we're not really handicapped. What does Paul say at the very end of Romans in his wonderful doxology? Paul speaks of God strengthening us by the gospel and Jesus' words. And then it says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. So we've got the mystery that Christ is our crucified Redeemer revealed to us, but it's also saying the Old Testament writings combined with the God-breathed apostolic teaching are also now more fully understood. All those prophecies of the Old Testament, including the one we are reading today, are fully assembled here in this one book, old and new, and now more fully revealed and understood than they ever were back then. Peter confirms us about the gospel, about our salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. And Peter says, things into which angels long to look. And then he says, now the truths of the gospel have been more fully revealed to us by the preachers of the good news inspired by the Holy Spirit. So can we say this, that you and I today have a better deal than the king did? You and I have not just the one prophet standing there like the king did, but we have the entire assemblage of the prophets. Plus, as Peter says later, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place and even more we are also certain no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so we do all we know to do to read the prophetic word to keep living in the obedience of faith to look to Christ to pray and then sometimes we say now what I do not know what to do Lord but my eyes are on you there's no prophet standing up to speak But we've got the treasure trove of words, and guidance, and direction, and the compass. Maybe I'm a young adult, and I've got my life ahead, and maybe college, and what do I do? Just do that. Do like Jehoshaphat. Just walk. Follow the prophetic words, like those of Paul to Timothy, after he tells him to teach, to serve like a soldier, to compete like an athlete, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul is always pointing everyone in that direction. He says things like, for whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Or Paul describing all the battle gear we wear, helmet and breastplate and shield and sword, and then... And having done all, to stand firm. So in our text, when the prophet here says, go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you, the king and the people bowed and fell down to worship. And then they began to praise as the Korahites led them. These were of the Levitical clan who David put in charge of the ministry of song after the ark came to Jerusalem. So here our passage starts highlighting their praise and singing and worship as they go out to face their enemy. And note it says they started by singing in a very loud voice, because this is basically Judah's choir. It's their worship team. And we can even notice that seven of the Psalms, apparently were all their work since they start out with for the director of music, the Sons of Korah. Now the ministry of song And music, the deliberate, planned praising of God, was very important in the kingdom. When David was old and full of years, he was finishing the preparations for the temple. And he assembled all the temple personnel, assigning the workers, the officers, the judges, and the gatekeepers. And then at the end, he finishes it all off with this. And 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. So for David, this was serious business, praising the Lord. And here in our text, it's very serious because this is how the Lord is going to defeat this vast horde of an army, as it is called. It says they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness to face the battle. And the king gives his final instructions to the people. Their success is in believing and trusting in God and his prophets have said. So then the king sets up the choir to sing. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. And so the battle begins. Now can we notice in all this that the Lord doesn't really direct them in exactly how to fight? When the prophet had said the battle was the Lord's, not theirs and they should go face the enemy, he simply said, stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord. He didn't tell them to put a choir out in front to succeed in battle. The people know that's just what we do. We sing, we praise, we worship the Lord in song. That's who we are. We worship. And note something important. The army isn't staying home. There's no presumption here. Their vast army is there to battle. That's what the king's army does. They march out against their enemy. And so they do so here. They are going about this battle in a normal way and waiting to see the Lord's salvation, which he promised through his prophet. And the people's minds and hearts, the king's mind and heart, they were well familiar with the Lord's faithfulness in the past. In Jehoshaphat's kingdom, the Lord had many times proven himself faithful. And they were fully relying upon and trusting in what the prophet had said, a real prophetic word. They knew they could trust it as true. So they put the two together and off they went to face the horde. Now I wanted to note how many of the songs we sing are like that. Singing of his faithfulness proven by what he has done for us and also his promises we can trust in. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And what's coming? His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And finally, when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll still praise him as many days as when we began. The prophetic word that teaches us those truths, we have that ourselves in the Bible. God shows us what is true, and we say, That is true. He does save us by faith in Christ. I do have that deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing what is to come. It says here, He will save a wretch like me. And, well, He has saved a very wretched wretch. So then He says, He didn't spare His own Son to do that. So won't you believe He'll graciously give you all things He has promised? His promise, as Paul says, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. This prophetic word, these scriptures, they match exactly with who God is, what he does. He fulfills every single word to mankind and to you personally. And so proves his faithfulness. And so it is certain every promise as you go forward is yes in Christ Jesus. So we left to sing about that. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And so we trust. We know his promise. It is certain. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And so Jehoshaphat, well acquainted with God's faithfulness, trusts in the prophetic words and proceeds according to plan. As usual, bring the army. As usual, sing his praises. As usual, fight when and where he says fight. So they start marching, and the text describes them singing only these words. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And why that brief description of their singing? His steadfast love endures forever. That seems to be a popular refrain in Israel and in Judah. When the ark was brought into the newly built temple and all was in place, the cloud of God's glory appeared and they all sang, For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then Solomon, his long prayer at the temple dedication, ends with fire coming down from heaven and all the people say for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And even back after the Babylonian exile, when they first laid the temple's foundation, all the singers sang the same words. They were fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy that they would be restored and sing those words. The Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Must be something very special about those words. He never wavers in his perfect love. He is faithful forever. Faithful forever and ever. And here he does it again. Jehoshaphat and Judah go out. But this is not a scene that we would be used to in our cinematic world with the cavalry charging forward with swords drawn or the soldier's shield arrayed in a mighty row marching in unison. Instead, we see it says, those who were singing and praising in holy attire... It says they went before the army. That's their front line. Guys dressed up in holy attire and singing and praising as they go with the army behind them. And the Lord fights for them. Totally. God ambushes the entire enemy. And they are routed. They see nothing but dead bodies. And it says none had escaped. So they gather the plunder for three days. And what are they still doing after all that? They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. They're still worshiping and singing and rejoicing and singing all the way into the temple. Now this is all Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, the Apostle Paul, he's also a singer in the face of overwhelming odds that look like there is limited chance of success. When Paul was in Philippi, going about his gospel preaching business, he cast a demon out of a fortune teller slave and got in big trouble, ruining her owner's business. It was a very painful result. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So he and Silas found themselves in prison. The jailer put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These are very nasty prisons. Now how do we see this in relation to our text? Well, Paul knows God is always faithful. He concludes to Timothy, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And when he knows his thorn in the flesh will never go away, he concludes, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When he's weak in himself, God's constantly proven he is strong. Then an overwhelming enemy, well, yes, Paul says simply, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So for Paul... Like Jehoshaphat, his life is often similar. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so, in the prison, not knowing whether life or death awaits, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They pray and they sing. I'm sure they're amazing the other prisoners. And what happens? Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So God does a delivering, miraculously. This kind of reminds me a lot of the crime shows, the main characters are constantly outgunned by hordes of bad guys, but they just fight back, far outnumbered, like they're invincible. Two guys with pistols against a horde, with machine guns or grenades. Of course, it's not real. But Paul, he is real. He just trusts God's going to do what's best in the midst of the deepest difficulty. And anyway, he lives like this. Or to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's sing and praise him in the meantime. And even though we don't see a lot of singing in the New Testament, we do know that it was really a regular part of their lives. Just like the ceremonies and the festivals. Paul, of course, tells us in Ephesians that we should be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And can we notice that at the Last Supper, at the last Passover with the disciples, as Jesus is preparing to be t- taken and beaten and tortured and crucified for our sins, they do not neglect to sing. At the end of the meal, the part we often read during communion, him saying, the bread, my body, and the cup, my blood. The very next thing is, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Following the normal Passover plan, that's a lot of singing. It's four long songs. And when we read this story about Jehoshaphat, it's really much like many stories in the history of Israel and Judah. Seemingly endless enemies against the people of God. Battles, losses, victories. And the Jews are frequently in peril, like here in our passage. And this passage this morning can be so intriguing to people to read because it's different. We read about the raging, horrible battles with their staggering death tolls, And they're really foreign to us except for the movie scenes they remind us of most of us really know little about war or battles but here we see them going out to meet the enemy not with swords drawn but in song singing their way to the enemy's front line and we can relate to that the singing we hear that and say i can relate to that always trusting and praising him that is a great victory plan the main thing here is not the singing, but the praising Him, the trusting Him. The singing is just the outward sign of hearts that are trusting, believing, hoping in His faithfulness to be proven once again. Yes, there is fear, of course. And there must be faith, obedience of faith, a real commitment to be, can we say like Paul says to Timothy, a soldier for Christ? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since its aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Because we've got to have total trust in our commanding officer to the point we, as Jesus says, renounce all that we have. Because he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We must bear our own cross as we follow Christ, be fully confident in and committed to the Lord, so that then you can do like Jehoshaphat did. What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Jehoshaphat did that and decided he could only have victory by trusting in the Lord. Can't be like the church in Laodicea, neither hot nor warm, so maybe going to get spit out. Not going to finish the race, win the battle, persevere to the end. But we've got to do it the right way. We have to be strong in the Lord. Like Paul says putting on the full armor of God not the full armor of me, and not the full armor of you. We believers are going to win, going to overcome, because John tells us the promise, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's only in saying, when I am weak, Then I am strong in Christ. There's no heroes here apart from God's miracle working power, warring against men and armies and the devil and our flesh. The Hall of Faith in Hebrews, Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, conquering, they're killing lions, quenching fire, dodging the sword. It ends by saying something interesting about these valiant fighters they were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight how and why God's sovereignty God strengthened them for the glory of God that was the ultimate end of all so what's this all about really for us we've got enemies a raging battle our flesh the devil in his fully corrupted world, he's turbocharging and surrounding us with right now. If you're young, trying to get a job or a degree or a spouse or a life or just a better car, but hopefully, as we go down the long road of our Christian walk, we're ultimately trying to glorify God and get to heaven to be with Christ. We are in the army, or at least we'd better be if we're going to survive. We must be ready to fight in the relentless spiritual battle of our daily lives by God's grace and for his glory. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, cannot rescue Ultimately, only our sovereign God, by His strength and purposes, He brings the victory for His glory. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So to Him be the glory forever. So, Father, we we thank you, Lord, for reminding us through King Jehoshaphat, Lord, that we must be prepared for battle. And you have made it very clear it's not that complicated, is it? To be trusting, to be obedient, to be walking in the ways of the Lord, to be repentant, to be observing your commands, to be... Reading and understanding the prophetic word to pray, to trust, and to walk. To say, we do not always know what to do, but we're looking to you. And so we walk. We just walk in that, and then you are able to show your glory, your victory, your strength in the midst of our weakness. Even a mighty king like Jehoshaphat, only in his weakness did he trust? Only in his fear did he come running to you. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to rely upon you so that, as the scripture says, so that it may be seen that it was by your strength that you brought the victory and in that you are glorified.